Welcome to Ancient Words, Modern Message. I'm your host, Roger Womble. The past is a mirror, and the more we examine what came before us, the more we can understand where we are heading. Have you ever noticed how easily we can be distracted from pursuing that which is most important by the allure of that which is of secondary importance? The Jewish people of the 6th century BC were released from exile in Babylon for the express purpose of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. But they were soon sidetracked and neglected that most important work, resulting in a lack of real fulfillment and satisfaction. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah called them back to first things, with the assurance of blessing which would follow, as we will see in this third study in the series Promises Made, Promises Kept, an episode we call You've done it your way, now do it God's way. We are going to be looking this evening, once again, of course, at the, the book of Zechariah. Zechariah being one of the three post-exilic prophets. He is also, of course, one of the twelve minor prophets, of the Old Testament, and we've been moving through the minor prophets in our series of Schmooze News and Views studies. You know there are 12 minor prophets. They're called the minor prophets not because they're less important, but they're called the minor prophets because the books that they have written are small, shorter, compared to some of the books of the major prophets, such as Isaiah, for example. One of the major prophets, 66 chapters, uh, none of the minor prophets has 66 chapters. And so these 12, some of these books are very small, some of them only one chapter, uh, but these are the 12 minor prophets. And those, uh, the prophets of the Old Testament, not just the minor prophets, but the prophets of the Old Testament fall into three categories, uh, chronologically, actually, and historically. Uh, there are the pre-exilic prophets. Those are the prophets who ministered before the exile, pre-exilic, before the Babylonian army swept down and carried some Jews off into exile from the southern kingdom. Those are the pre-exilic prophets. Then there are the exilic prophets. These are the prophets who wrote during the exile, when the Jewish people were, had exiles in Babylon. For example, Ezekiel and Daniel, those would be the exilic prophets. And then there are just three post-exilic prophets. These are the prophets who prophesied, ministered after a remnant of Jews returned from the exile, post-exilic. And of course, Zechariah is one of those. But as the notes would, would indicate, I would suggest to you that in order to understand Zechariah's prophecy, we need to recall the general flow of Israel's history. That is the major period, some of the major periods in the history of the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. And so I've given you a little bit of a capsulized summary of the major periods in Israel's history. And let's just move through that quickly 
And I would point out to you that the, the first major period we're looking at is the united monarchy. Monarchy meaning that there was a monarch, meaning that there was a king. And united meaning that the Jewish people were united, that all of the Jews were part of one, uh, one system, one monarchy. And the united monarchy, of course, began with the first king of Israel, that is King Saul. And you remember that the Jewish people bellyached for a long time. Uh, they, they weren't satisfied just to have prophets leading them and judges, but they were actually uh, looking around and saying, well, all of the people around us have a king. We ought to have a king. And so they bellyached long enough that God gave them a king. Now, the lesson that we should take from that is be careful what you wish for because they got Saul. Now, Saul was somebody you would consider to be really good king material. He was handsome. He was tall. He was robust. He was charismatic, but he had a lot of problems. And, of course, he was the first king of the United Monarchy. Following Saul, there was King David. Familiar with that, of course. And then following King David, there was David's son, Shlomo, or Solomon. Those are the three kings of the united monarchy when Israel was one body. Then, the next major period is the divided monarchy. As the name would indicate, still the Jewish people have a king, but now they are not one people. Now there has been the division of the Jewish people into two groups, and hence the name divided monarchy. And the divided monarchy began when there was a rebellion by a man named Jeroboam against Solomon's son, whose name was Rehoboam. And you remember that Rehoboam imposed some rather ill-advised policies of taxation. And the result was that Jeroboam led a rebellion against Rehoboam as the king and the, the nation was divided into two. There were 10 of the 12 tribes that followed Jeroboam in that rebellion. And they became known as the Northern Kingdom of Israel because most of those 10 tribes were in the Northern, settled in the Northern part of Israel. There were only two tribes that remained loyal to Rehoboam. And those two tribes were Judah and Benjamin. And that kingdom became known as the Southern Kingdom. Uh, the year when this took place, approximately 931 BC. By the way, the Northern Kingdom is often in the Old Testament, by the prophets particularly, identified as simply Israel, or sometimes called Ephraim or Ephraim, because one of those 10 tribes of the northern kingdom was the tribe of Ephraim or Ephraim, uh, one of the larger tribes. Uh, the southern kingdom is most often referred to as Judah. So when you see Israel, the house of Israel, and the house of Judah, the house of Israel is the northern kingdom, the 10 tribes, the house of Judah is the southern kingdom of the two tribes. Then, of course, the next major period is when the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, were invaded by the Assyrian army, 
And the capital city of the northern kingdom, which was Samaria, was, uh, was defeated at the hands of the Assyrians in 722 BC. Jews were carried off from, this, from the northern kingdom and dispersed, as I said earlier, many of them never returned. There were some Jews that remained in the northern area of Israel, and it was the policy of the Assyrians to, to really bring in other people from the outside to intermarry with those people who had been defeated, and the result was kind of a mongrel race, if you would, one of those being the Samaritans, as in the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, so that would be the northern kingdom. And then, about 140 years later, something like that, along comes the Babylonian army, and they invade, begin to invade the southern kingdom, the capital of which is Jerusalem. And there was a series of invasions at the hands of the Babylonians, but the, the last invasion that was really the most catastrophic was in 586 B.C., that was when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed completely. The temple that stood on the Temple Mount that had been built by David's son Solomon, that first temple was completely destroyed in 586 BC. And a group of Jews was carried off from the southern kingdom into Babylon. It was the Babylonians who defeated them into Babylon for a 70-year period of exile. You remember that Jeremiah the prophet, amazingly, before, before the exile really began, prophesied that the length of that exile would be 70 years. And sure enough, in 538 BC, approximately 70 years, if you date the first invasion uh, as being 608 BC, remember I said there was a series of invasions, it was 70 years later when, according to Ezra chapter 1, King Cyrus, who now, as the, as the head of the Persian Empire, having defeated the Babylonians, Cyrus decides it would be a good idea, God put the idea in his head, that it would be a good idea to allow these Jews to return from exile in Babylon for the express purpose of rebuilding their temple in Jerusalem. And so it was in 538 BC that a remnant of people, of Jewish people, not all of them who were in Babylon, remember they were there for 70 years. So there had been children born there, grandchildren born there. Many of them were settled in. The result was, by the way, that they just stayed there. But there was a remnant of Jews who went back uh, to Jerusalem for the express purpose of rebuilding the temple. And God sent two prophets, the prophet Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, to speak to that group of exiles who had returned from, um, from exile in Babylon. Now remember, they went back specifically to rebuild the temple. And at first, that went, that went well, because uh, we read in Ezra, the first few chapters of Ezra, uh, we read that uh, under the leadership of Haggai and Zechariah, uh, the first thing they did was they actually built the altar of sacrifice, the large altar of sacrifice on the Temple Mount that had been destroyed. And they offered sacrifices there. They even observed Pesach or Passover there. 
Uh, and then, uh, shortly after that, the group continued to work and they laid the foundation for this temple that was to be rebuilt, which would be known as the Second Temple. Uh, but the thing about it is, there's a couple of problems with that. One is that there were some people who were part of the group that had returned from exile who were old enough, now they were up in years, but they were old enough to remember what the first temple was like, Solomon's temple. And it was splendid. It was huge. By comparison, the foundation of this temple is very small. And those individuals, many of them who could remember the first temple, wept when the foundation was laid. But there were other Jews who were just happy that the foundation had been laid. So far, so good. But there's a couple of problems. One is that there were other people around these Jews who had returned from exile who didn't like the fact that they were there, didn't like the fact that they were rebuilding the temple. And so they began to oppose the work. And at the same time, many of these Jewish exiles who had returned started having second thoughts about spending so much time building the temple. Because after that, they started saying, well, we have to live in houses. I mean, after all, we need a place to live. And we could probably do a better job building the temple if we have a nice house to live in. And so they began to build their own houses. And as a result of that, work on rebuilding the temple stopped. And actually, Haggai is the prophet who was prophesying during that period of time. The work had begun, and now they had stopped. And for 18 years, there was no more work being done on the temple. Fortunately, because of the brave ministry of Haggai and Zechariah, finally, after that 18-year period of time, 538 B.C. to 520 B.C., the Jews were challenged to resume the work for which they had come. Well, more to say about that in a little while. And in a four-year period of time, the temple was completed, the second temple. And it stood, the second temple. Now, it was expanded over the next several hundred years, largely by Herod the Great, right before Jesus was born. Uh, during that period of time, it was expanded immensely but that second temple was the one that was standing in Jesus' day, and it was the one that was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, and there has not been a temple since that time. Though the scriptures tell us that there is going to be a temple rebuilt in the future. That's for another study. Okay, those are the major periods of time in the history uh, of the Jewish people, and that's an important background to have. Now that brings us to uh, this section this evening, Zechariah chapter 8, verses 9 through 19. Remember, in previous studies, uh, two weeks ago, we looked at Zechariah 8, 1 through 8, and then we picked up at verse 20 to the end of the chapter, and I said we'd be coming back uh, to this section, and that's what we're doing this evening. But before we actually jump into it, uh, I want to suggest to you that this section, Zechariah 8, 9 through 19, uh, needs to be compared with Haggai, the other post-exilic prophet, chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. Now, you will remember that that prophet, Haggai, 
was prophesying, was ministering, when the exiles began the good work of rebuilding the temple. But then they stopped, and they were too busy building their own houses, and they weren't doing what God had commanded them to do, the, the purpose for which he called them back to the land. And so Haggai is now addressing those people who weren't doing the work to which God had called them to do. And, and let me begin by reading Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 15, or we'll skip the first couple of verses, but Haggai chapter 1, and listen to the words of Haggai, uh, actually verse 3 uh, through verse 15. Uh, Haggai chapter 1, 3. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your paneled houses? And this house, that is the Lord's house, the temple, to lie waste. Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but you're not filled with drink. Ye clothe yourselves, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. All of that to say, these people had turned to their own enterprise and pursuits, taking care of themselves, and had ignored obedience to what God called them to do, thinking that they would be happier, they would be more satisfied, they would be more filled, fulfilled, and the result was that they were not. That everything was going wrong. It's probably summarized in this statement, he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Have you ever had that feeling? That uh, the money you're earning that you put in your wallet, the next time you open your wallet and you say, what happened to it? Well, that was the case here. I read on. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house. What house? The Lord's house. Not your house, the Lord's house. And I will take pleasure in it and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, God says, I did blow upon it, and it was gone. Why, saith the Lord of hosts? Because of mine house that is waste, and ye run every man unto his own house. Therefore the heavens over you withhold the dew. In other words, there's no rain. And the earth which withholds her fruit. The ground is not productive. And I called for a drought upon the land and upon the mountains and upon the grain and upon the new wine and upon the oil and upon that which the ground bringeth forth and upon men and upon cattle and upon all the labor of the hands. In other words, it's a mess. Then Zerubbabel, who was the leader of the exiles who returned, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, who is now the high priest, came back with the group that came from Babylon. Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed, finally, finally, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people did fear before the Lord. Then spoke Haggai, the Lord's messenger, in the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, 
and the spirit of, jo spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Which is to say, they got back to work in the four and twentieth day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Now you need to have that background because what you have before you in the text has to be compared with that. Keep in mind that when the people were disobedient, when they were disobedient and went their own way, their lives were miserable. But now Zechariah comes onto the scene uh, and it is now 520 BC and the work has resumed on the temple. It is going on, it is happening. And would you notice the contrast between conditions in Zechariah's time, 520 BC, when work had begun on the temple again, and what it was like in previous years when the people were just doing their own thing in disobedience to God. So follow as I read, beginning with verse nine. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid that the temple might be built. By the way, who are the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid that the temple might be built? Haggai and Zechariah. He's talking about himself and his contemporary Haggai. And then he says this, remember what things were like just a few years ago when you were all about building your own fancy houses. Remember what it was like? For before those days, that is the days that are going on now, there was no wage for man or any wage for beast. Neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in, for I set every man against his neighbor. That's what it was like then. And he says, verse 11, but now, now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, the past few years, declares the Lord of hosts, for there shall be a sowing of peace. Now there will be peace. And now the vine will give its fruit, the ground will give its produce, the heavens will give its dew, there will be rain, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, in other words, your experience as Jewish people was the Gentiles around you would say, may you be cursed the way the Jews are cursed. So they were actually a byword of cursing among the Gentiles. As you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purpose to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, that is when you were disobedient to me, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days, that is Zechariah's time, now that they're back at the work, doing what God wants them to do, I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another, render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, Zechariah says, saying, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. As the notes indicated. I believe these verses, when compared with Haggai 1, 1 to 15, provide a powerful lesson in the benefits of obedience to the Lord compared with the consequences of disobedience. Now, you look at that description of what it was like in Zechariah's time in 520 BC and the few years after that, and you say, wow, Sounds like things were really good for Israel and for the Jews of the southern kingdom. Boy, that's great. Things are wonderful. Well, they were pretty good, as we've just read it was like. Here's the problem. It wasn't very long before they became disobedient to God once again. And it wasn't very long before they experienced the consequences of that disobedience. But I would suggest to you that in Zechariah's day, there was a little foretaste of what lies ahead way in the future from Zechariah for the Jewish people. It is as if God is just giving this little sense of what the Jewish people could experience if they were truly obedient to their God. And so, look at the notes. I summarize it this way. Israel's blessedness described by Zechariah in these verses is just the slightest foretaste of what awaits them in the future. But then there's this. After they as a people have been refined as silver is refined and tested as gold is tested. Later on in the book of Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 9, God says he's going to bring the nation of Israel through the fire. And there is going to be a terrible time of suffering for the Jewish people yet in the future. Worse than anything they have experienced up to this point. But the result of that, when they realize who Jesus is, and when they turn to him, then suddenly their hearts, their lives, and their situation will be changed. And so, when divided Israel is reunited, then there will be the kind of blessing for the Jewish people in the land of which this in Zechariah's day was just a little taste. Now, the fact that this is to take place in the future and it was not fulfilled in Zechariah's day is very clearly indicated from verse 13. Notice this. As you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, and then see this. O house of Judah and house of Israel so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. House of Judah, house of Israel. That's the northern kingdom, house of Israel. Southern kingdom, house of Judah. When all of a sudden those two kingdoms are going to be brought back together again. 
and all the Jewish people will be one. That has not happened yet at this point. It certainly didn't happen in Zechariah's day. He's prophesying to the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, the house of Israel, was already gone at the hands of the Assyrians. So it's in the future when this is going to happen. And then, just an interesting little note, verse 19. Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Notice the contrast. The fasts and the feasts. Remember back in chapter 7, it was our first study a month ago, when there was a delegation of individuals from the city of Bethel who came to Jerusalem, and they sought the advice of the prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, and the, the advice of the priests. And they said, when we were in Babylon in years gone by, we began to observe certain fasting days that commemorated when our city was destroyed by the Babylonians, when the temple was destroyed, we started to observe these fast days, when for 24 hours we didn't eat or drink. There was one in the fourth month, there's one in the fifth month, there's one in the seventh month, there's one in the tenth month. So remember, the delegation came and asked Zechariah, Haggai, and the priests, do we have to still do that? I mean, because after all, we're back in the land now. So it's all good. You know, everybody's happy. Do we have to still do that? Zechariah and Haggai didn't really answer that. Other than to say, your motive for doing that was wrong to begin with. But now, what Zechariah says is this. The time is coming in the future when those fasting times will actually be times, you see it, of cheerful feasts. By the way, still today in the Jewish world, those four months, each one of them, contains a special day of fasting. The best known is the one that's on the fourth month, and that is Tisha B'Av. We talked about it before, where for 24 hours Jewish people don't eat because they remember the destruction of the temple. And so that, too, points to the future. Well, we've been talking about Bible prophecy. And in fact, all of these studies, for the most part, are about Bible prophecy. Technically, the study of Bible prophecy is known as eschatology. And that is the study of last days or last things. But I would be remiss if I didn't suggest to you that, that as complicated and as challenging as the study of Bible prophecy can be, and you all have been so good. I mean, this is heavy stuff, right? Pat yourself on the back. This is heavy stuff. But the fact of the matter is that the purpose behind all of this, studying Bible prophecy, studying eschatology, should not be to get bogged down in all of the details, although they're all important. But the purpose should always be to produce certain results. The study of what God promises he's going to do in the future, because remember, promises made, promises kept. God always keeps his promises. The study of those promises of what God is going to do down the line for Israel and the rest of the world should produce results. What are those results that are, should be produced? Well, first of all, it should be that it produces strength, strength. 
Notice back in Zechariah 8, you notice verse 9? It says, let your hands be strong, Zechariah says. Verse 13, at the end of the verse, let your hands be strong. A study of what God is going to do in the future should put starch in our backbones. The result should be, be strong in what you are doing. The second result should be courage. Courage. Notice verse 13, where Zechariah says, fear not. And again, he says in verse 15, fear not. Zechariah said to them, this is what God's going to do in the future for you. So be courageous. Don't be crippled by fear. God doesn't want us to be crippled by fear. God wants us to be courageous. And a study of Bible prophecy can do that. But then, very important, is it should also produce holy living. Day-to-day -day holy living. Notice verses 16 and 17. After telling the people what God is going to do, Zechariah says, okay, what should you do now? Verse 16, these are the things that you shall do. We've talked about what God's going to do in the future. Here's what you should be doing now. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Verse 19, the last words, therefore, love, truth, and peace. And I close with the words of the Apostle Peter. They're very important. 2 Peter chapter 3. And Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3 has been talking about how the world's going to end. How it's all going to end up. And how God is going to basically destroy the present earth. And he's going to recreate a new heaven and a new earth. Which will be the eternal state in which God's people those who have come to him through faith in Jesus will be living for all of eternity. And this is what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 and following. But the day of the Lord, that's the period of time that where God gets directly involved in the affairs of the world and wraps everything up. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are in it shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy living and godliness? Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, I know I am, I hope you are, looking unto the coming of the day of God, in which the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, according to his promise, promises made, promises kept, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, he wraps it up in this way. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. That's what should be the effect of studying some of these very complicated things? And that is strength, courage, and holy living. And with that, we close.
Thanks for listening to Ancient Words, Modern Message. You can expect a new episode every other Monday, so please join us again. Ancient Words, Modern Message is supported by Hebrew Christian Fellowship. To learn more about our ministry or to ask a question, contact us at hcfellowship4819 at gmail.com. If you know someone who might be interested in this teaching, please share it with them. And please consider leaving a review of what you've heard on Apple Podcasts. Your input helps us make our program even better and reach new listeners. All you have to do is open up the podcast app on your phone, look for Ancient Words, Modern Message, scroll down until you see Write a Review, and tell us what you think. Ancient Words, Modern Message is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. And I'm your host, Roger Womble, reminding you that the Word of God is living and active. Until next time, showers of blessings on you and those you love.